We've been going through 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 5. The letter that we call 2 Corinthians contains many of Paul's responses to accusations against him that were swirling around in the Corinthian congregation. He had already tried to go there and deal with things face to face. That didn't work. And so he wrote a letter that we don't have any longer that uh, really scolded them for their attitude. And that letter hit home and the people of Corinth, the Christians in the Corinthian church were uh, more open and uh, so Paul then writes this letter to continue to explain himself and um, especially respond to charges or accusations that had come from some false apostles that had infiltrated the congregation. That's what we find in 2 Corinthians 5, 13, and 14, which is our passage this morning. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. So, what is Paul talking about here? Let's look at verse 13 first, the first part here. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. It seems that one of the difficulties of both 1st and 2nd Corinthians is that we're trying to figure out a conversation when we're only hearing one side of it. Have you ever listened you know, to someone on the phone and you could only hear what they were saying and what, not what the other person is saying? It's difficult to figure out the conversation. But of course we believe that the one who inspired 1st and 2nd Corinthians has made sure that we have enough Information to find the truth that we need to know. When Paul here says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, he seems to, and in this larger passage where 13 and first half of 14, he seems to be responding to three accusations. Number one, the claim of his detractors that their that their public ecstatic experiences and practices validate the legitimacy of their ministry over against Paul's ministry. The second criticism that he seems to be responding to is that Paul was too ordinary in his preaching style, too logical, too informational, And thirdly, there was the charge that he was operating out of self-interest and didn't actually care about the Corinthians. So these are charges that the 
false apostles had made against Paul that had found some hearing among the Corinthian believers. And so Paul is trying to address these things. The first thing that Paul, Paul addresses the first of these three charges by referring to his own ecstatic experiences. Now he had done this in the in 1 Corinthians when he talked about how I speak in tongues more than all of you. But here in 2 Corinthians, and that's in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, here in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, he refers to a, a, an experience he had in chapter in the first few verses of chapter 12 where he was actually either taken to heaven or given a vision of heaven he doesn't even know but he saw into heaven itself but he says that these are private matters between him and God and not for the sake of ministry secondly he says that for ministry He puts on a sound mind in order to persuade men about the truth of the gospel. That's why he has this style that seems so logical and ordinary and informational. So he's saying that his ecstasy is for God, but his sound mind is for people. Now what does this say about ecstatic experiences? Paul is certainly not critical of ecstatic experiences. Paul himself had them and expressed a wish in 1 Corinthians 14.5 that all the Corinthians could have them. But ecstatic experiences which look to the outsider like you're out of your mind are not biblically a criteria by which to judge a person's spirituality or qualification for ministry. You see, when it comes to ecstatic experiences, there's a great temptation to put on a show in front of others in order to make it look like you're very spiritual. And we know that this is a technique used by many, even today. And this was happening in the Corinthian church, it seems. And Paul talks extensively about it in 1 Corinthians 14. For there, he's addressing the Corinthians because they are they have become absorbed in the gift of tongues. And tongues that are not interpreted, so nobody can understand what the people are saying. But it's being used because it's so impressive, it looks so spiritual. It looks so otherworldly. And so Paul in that passage insists that uninterpreted tongues are not for public, but rather for personal, private intimacy with God. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul informs the Corinthians of his ecstatic experience of heaven, he is clearly embarrassed to even tell them about these things because he doesn't want to come across as if he's bragging about his ecstatic experiences because that can so easily be used to manipulate people. 
The other problem with ecstatic experiences is that they can easily be counterfeited. How can you judge if I have had an ecstatic experience or not? It puts people beyond criticism, beyond analysis, by the very nature of the experience. That's why we should keep things like that between us and God. I don't mean that you can't mention it. I'm not trying to say it has to be secret. But these things are between you and God. They're not the basis of ministry or qualification for ministry. Not to be used to impress others. Now, these kind of temptations aren't especially strong in Presbyterian churches. However, these temptations, similar temptations are, we know that out in, in the context of many Christian circles and churches, they're driven by experientialism. Spiritual, emotional experiences are are used to rile people up and to and to make points and to prove things and to demonstrate one's own connection with God, but it proves nothing. And that's why he says, "If we are besides ourselves, it is for God." But as I said, there are similar temptations that we face even in circles like Presbyterian Christian circles. For instance, in our circles, one of the temptations is when we pray publicly. To pray long and lofty prayers that make our private prayers look pathetic. Isn't that the same thing? We're just trying to impress others and make ourselves look like we're much more godly than we really are. Now the second part. The second part of that verse. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. What does Paul mean by that? Well, in his ministry... Paul did not rely on ecstatic experiences as the basis of his message. He used reason based on truth in order to convince men about Christ. He was of sound mind in order to communicate the truth to people. So much so that he apparently was being criticized for being too reasonable, too logical, too cerebral. You see, God's revelation does not merely come through experience but along with experiences God gives understandable interpretation of experience that are, is recorded in words and sentences and phrases in the holy scriptures that we can understand by our minds with the help of the holy spirit Paul makes clear that experience and emotion are not the basis of our faith. God wants us to experience him for sure. He wants us to experience a full range of emotions unto him and for his glory. But our faith is never based on those things. 
The Christian faith rests upon the facts of who God is and what he has done in history and what he has said according to his word. If we want to be able to give encouragement and guidance to others in the Lord, we need much more than ecstatic experiences to do so. We need to know God's word. We need to know which parts of God's word relate to the struggles that our friend is having. We need to know which, where the promises are that a brother or sister needs to be reminded of. And if we ever hope to convince those who don't yet know the Lord about the reality of the Lord Jesus, we're going to have to do more than have very strong feelings about our salvation. We are going to have to learn about it and understand it and be able to try to explain it to others. And this is what I think Paul means when he says that he is of sound mind for the sake of others. If we are in the right mind, it is for you. And then in verse 14, just the first half, Paul concludes his thought with this. For the love of Christ controls us. Since ecstatic experiences make people pay attention to the one having the experience, I act that way only when I'm alone with God and avoid them in public. Since people learn best by well-reasoned explanation, I will continue to minister with rational thinking and sound explanations, for I am controlled by the love of Christ. You see, for Paul, ecstatic experiences were not for his own pleasure, but rather for God. And when he was of sound mind, that was not for himself either. It was for others, specifically for the sake of his ministry. In both cases, he is living in the love of Christ, not acting out of selfishness as he was being accused of doing. Let's think more about this concept of being controlled by the love of Christ. The nature of man is selfless, selfishness, as we know. To do all things for oneself. But the pattern of Christ is very different. He came and lived not for himself, but for others, for you and me. And now he's instilling the same spirit of self-denying love into those he called to be his own. Working in us that we will not be controlled by self-love, but by the love of Christ. We all know what it's like to have some love for someone. And how that's different than having the kind of love for someone which drives us to act. We can't just let them go along in need when because we love them, we're driven, we're moved to do something about their problem. God didn't just have some love for us. His love for us was so great that it constrained him. It moved him. Or God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A word that gets lost in that is the word so. God so loved the world. This idea that his love drove him. It moved him to take action 
Constraining love is what moved God to save us. And now constraining love is what God wants to give us that we might be moved to help others. You see, it doesn't stop with God. God gave his love to apostles and missionaries and evangelists which drove those men and women to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. The love of Christ, Paul says, one of the greatest and first missionaries, the love of Christ controls us. You and I, we owe our salvation not only to Christ whose love drove him to the cross, but also to the love of Christ in others who were driven by love to bring us the gospel or to bring the gospel to those who brought us the gospel. And this is the love God gives his people today in order that we might be driven, in order that we might be compelled, in order that we might be constrained to love one another and to love the world that God so loved in John 3.16. Being compelled by love is not the same, though, very, very different from loving out of duty or out of obedience to the rules or to the law. This love, the love that that Paul's talking about here, does not come by trying hard. It comes only from God. Part of becoming a Christian, part of being born again, is being given God's love for others. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. You know the word translated in verse 14 as control, I'm controlled. And that it's not an easy word to translate. Um, and some translations say I'm constrained by the love of Christ some say I'm compelled by the love of Christ but the word that's translated there it actually has many meanings even in Greek but all of them go back to one central meaning, meaning and that is being seized we are seized by the love of Christ we are gripped by the love of Christ. We are arrested by the love of Christ. And those seized by the love of Christ are then eager to love, eager to help, looking for opportunities to, to do something for my brother, for my sister that will help. The fact is that all of us are seized by things. All of us are constrained by something or another. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it that constrains me? You can't just try harder to love. You've got to ask yourself, what's going on in my heart? What is driving me? What is it that I don't forget about? You know, I, 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 I'm a person like some of you who forget stuff. 
you know, and, and uh, my wife asked me to pick up the mail, and I forget to pick up the mail. And she asked me to mail a letter, and I forget to mail the letter on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And You know, it's easy for her to say, you know, I just, she just can't understand. She doesn't forget this kind of stuff. Um, and it's easy for me to just say, well, it's just who I am. I just don't have a good memory. But there's another aspect of it, if I'm honest with myself, and that's, you know, I'm not driven by love. If I really was passionate to do what I could to help my wife, I wouldn't just keep driving by our mailbox and forgetting to stop. (laughs) For some people, they're driven by the love of money. For some people, it's creature comforts. You know, it's... Some people, it's just rest. It's like the sluggard. I just want rest. Just few more minutes of rest. He spends his whole life wanting a few more minutes of rest. That's the portrait that was painted in the book of Proverbs. For other people it's human approval, but something drives us. Something constrains us. And what this is saying is that what ought to constrain us is the love of Christ. People who are not gripped by the love of Christ are generally people who haven't yet realized how God was gripped with love for them. People who are not gripped with the love of Christ generally are people who haven't yet realized how God was gripped with love for them to do what he did. Many people think of Christianity as being all about doing good, being good people. But that's just a byproduct. And those people look at someone like Paul and they're very impressed. What a good person. I wish I could be like that. Just being so good and wanting to help others, constrained by love. They love that idea, but frankly, that idea is just garbage. Christianity is not about being a good person. It's about finding a treasure. Finding the ultimate treasure. The fact is Paul was a bad person. An enemy of God and of his people. But he found a treasure. And that's what Christians are. They're bad people who find a treasure. And their lives are transformed, not by trying hard to be good. Their lives are transformed by the treasure. Their lives are transformed by the reality of the love of God, which their eyes have been opened to. Think about how great God's love for his people must be that it can be reflected from us to others, even though we're such broken, common, soiled channels or vessels or whatever. One of my favorite things about the night sky is that if you look at the moon at night, 
and this doesn't work when there's a full moon, but any other time. Sometimes you can see the dark side of the moon. You know, maybe it's a half moon and half of it's very bright, but the other half of it, sometimes you can see it quite distinctly. Sometimes it's rather dim and sometimes you can't see it at all. Well, the reason that that is is because that dark side of the moon is actually seeing the earth. In other words, you know, we see the moon. They, if you were on the if, if you were on the moon looking at the earth, it would be bigger. And they look at that earth and sometimes it's a dark earth. Sometimes it's a full earth. Sometimes it's a half earth. Sometimes it's a crescent earth, just like we see the moon. And when it's a bright earth, all that light shines on the part of the moon that doesn't get the sun's light but they still get enough light for us to see it. In other words, the sun is so bright that it can shine upon the earth and reflect off of this place of water and dirt and trees and other stuff like that. And the reflection is so bright that that light then, you know, that's 93 million miles to the earth, and then it goes, what, 29 or 39,000 miles or whatever it is to the, to the moon. And then it comes back to us, reflects off the dirt of the moon. And we can still see it. So that light has traveled from sun to earth to moon to earth. Four journeys. Three journeys. And yet still we can see it. How bright is the sun? And in the same way, it's amazing that the love of Christ is so strong and so bright that it can shine off of even people like us and be experienced in this world which is such a need of it. So we'll never shine as like Christ does. We'll never be as bright as God's love is but we can really reflect his light and his love. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Where God's light shines, it's reflected. You can't shine that, a light that, that's bright and it just disappears in darkness. And that's why if anyone says... I love God and hates his neighbor. He's just lying. That's 1 John 4.20. He's just lying. If a man says, I love God, but hates his neighbor. He doesn't love God. If he really loved God, he would reflect God's love. If he'd really seen God's love, he would reflect God's love. So if he doesn't reflect it, he hasn't seen it. This is such an integral part of being a true believer in Christ Jesus. In fact, in 1 John 3, 19 and 20, John says, 
that this is how we know we're truly saved. Talking about love, he says, by this, in other words, by real love for each other, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whoever, for who, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. You see, sometimes our hearts condemn us. Our, sometimes our hearts are fickle and they, you know, and Satan speaks accusing and we start to waver in our assurance of salvation. And John is saying that's when you can look at your hearts and your lives and see that yes, God has given me love for others. And by that we can be reassured that we are indeed truly saved. If you are interested in thinking more about love, I have a recommendation for you. Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits, is one of, I believe, one of the best Christian books ever written. It's really just you know, putting to, into a book his sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. It is amazing. And it's his most easily understood work. So it's not uh, philosophical or difficult to understand. So if, if uh, I, I hardly recommend this book. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. We now come now to the place where we celebrate the great demonstration of the love of Christ in the giving of himself. For this is a reenactment of Christ giving his body and his blood upon the cross for our salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for the wonder of your love for us in your Son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to take this lightly. For there's no greater gift, no greater act of love that has ever been committed. And Lord, we're the recipients of it. We deserve nothing. You gave us everything. And now, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be opened to the reality of what our Savior has done for us and that it would be transformative. It would change the way we look at others. It would change the way we act towards others. It would change the way we use our time and our money and our resources and our strength. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be able to say, as a result of your Spirit's work in us, the love of Christ controls us. Now bless us in our partaking 
May we, O Lord, eat and drink deeply of the love of Christ in this sacrament. We pray in his name. Amen.